0: And now back to Kimia Esla.
1: Can I tell you a story? Yeah. Okay. So it's not a very exciting story. I don't have exciting stories. I'm not that person. But I have mundane stories that I really like. And uh, this story is about when I was a youth. So uh, when uh, I grew up in the 90s, and so that meant a lot of just heavy, baggy clothes. And well, actually, it meant for me a lot of heavy, baggy clothes and you know, shaved hair here and there, and all the piercings and all that. And um, I certainly didn't fit the feminine archetype. But I would regularly hear, especially from family members who were very concerned about where I was going in life, that if you want to make your way in the world, uh, you have to be much more appealing and much more appeasing to the eye it put a lot of doubt in my head, a lot of doubt about who I am, what's okay. And it didn't change how I presented myself. I was still loud. I was still brash. And I, I I didn't feel like myself when I wore the other clothes, I wanted my clothes. And so I continued through my 20s and through my 30s. And I was still having success. And I was still moving up in the world, and I was still making good friends and finding good jobs and establishing really meaningful sense of community. And I think it wasn't until my 40s that I it occurred to me that, oh, I think they were wrong. <laughs> I, don't think, <laughs> I don't think I need to dress like that, And which is interesting because now I love to dress like that, but I don't need to. I proved that I don't need to change. And no matter what anyone says, that's a fear that they have. But I might be just willing to give up on the benefits of this other caricature they want me to play. And so when you asked me about Farah not changing at all, certainly she did change a bit because who can go through trauma without change? But at the same time, I wanted to show the world that. The things that are going wrong, the ways that we judge, especially youth, 20 somethings, teenagers, it's based on our own prejudice. When I see someone who is young and queer and out, like visibly out, I get scared for them. I get scared for them the way I was scared when I was 16 and 17. And I knew that if I did something that outed me, it could lead to physical violence. And so I'm scared for them and I don't want them to get hurt. But at the same time, now at least I'm aware enough to know to keep my mouth shut and not to tell them to change, right? So the idea is we make other people change. So for Farah, she didn't change her clothes. She didn't change her attitude. She still wanted her independence. And I needed her to have that and have everybody else around her start to make the change to understand, oh, So this is what patriarchy is. This is what it means when there's violence against women and we don't recognize it. And this is how we support someone without asking them to change.
0: Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that answer a lot, and I I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying um, because I I often see it in in uh, young students that I teach. You know who are yeah in their twenties, and I love the fact that they, you know, get to uh, shave their head and do do the things that eh, sometimes I did, but not consistently, right? Uh, and you're right. And sometimes I I worry for them standing at the bus stop or anything, right? But but they have made that choice and they are bold and they are brave in a way that, uh, you know, many of us were, were not when we were young. And I just, I have to hand it to them. It's a courageous way to move through the world, right? Yes. And you're right. And the impulse to protect them is huge, huge. And I'm always trying to judge what I can do with the privilege that I have yeah. to protect them and what would be too much and smothering and uh, out of line because I'm not their parent,
1: right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Anyway, so but yeah, let's so let's talk about masculinity in this book because I, I think you got you got some things absolutely right on the guy with the predatory behavior. And speaking of being young, I super remember guys like that at parties that I would go to because mm-hmm. when you're young, someone says, "Yeah, my a friend of a friend or my neighbor is having a party. Let's go." And you just do because you think you can hang out with your friend and maybe you'll meet other people. Right. Uh, But yeah, the like sort of the creepy older guy who is much older than everyone else at the party and yeah, so he just kind of made my skin crawl in memory of exactly those kinds of guys, right? Who, yeah, had all kinds of gross predatory behavior. so i th- I wanted to congratulate you for uh, summoning up that <laughs> that grossness.
1: I don't even like reading those sections. I didn't uh, yeah, it was it was not a uh, pleasant to write the sections. I wanted to portray uh, the thinking of someone close enough to uh, with some of the markers that a man would recognize in his own head as like oh that's a logic that i follow that's a weird that's weird that i share that in common with this person and same with the father and the the father's work friend to be able to have them be as human as possible so that a man reading the book could see himself in those positions because I think that's the interesting, the, one of the myths, right, that we deal with with uh, sexual violence and violence against women is that it's the stranger. It's, uh, it's someone you don't know, someone who doesn't care about you. And to know that with a concept like patriarchy, someone who loves you can hurt you. A man who thinks that they're just living in the world and taking and doing the things that they want. To be able to show that, hey, that's a state of mind. And that can take you to very bad places. And if you don't know that that's your state of mind, and that's how you imagine that you can't see a woman as a person, you see her as a thing, that you too could be susceptible to treating a woman like a thing.
0: Yeah, and I was very interested in your portrayal of Mustafa, the father, because Throughout the book, he makes these kinds of realizations that he goes, oh, well, I'm not that guy. And I'm not that guy. But it takes him a long time to figure out who he is or to examine who he is, because he is very much uh, following through on there are worse fathers in the world than me. And that's accurate, <laughs> right? There, there are. Yeah, there are. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, very soon it becomes, well, it's not enough to just not be the worst. You have to think about how to be better, mm-hmm. right? And, I, and I, loved, um, I loved the conversation that he has with his work friends that takes him another step further. And then of course, the conversation that he, that he has with his daughters and, and, and his wife that takes him uh, another step further where he loses, in some ways he loses his, uh, what he thinks of as control over the family, but he gains something else. He gains empathy, he gains understanding, right? And again, so do you think that's part of the uh the, the fairy tale aspect that you wanted to show what what it could be like, or an ultimate what it could be like?
1: That's a good question too. Tennis, stop it with the good questions. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh okay, so I've met many fathers, especially since having my own child. Now I've met many young fathers. So uh, guys in their 30s and 40s, and it's a very interesting conundrum. It's it's a terrible paradigm to live in for them that they are they expect themselves to be everything, and it's not okay for them to ask for help. And they struggle at every age, whether it's with their children or their grandchildren, whether it's with their partners or their siblings as they grow older. We've told them for so long that they have to be providers, protectors. For so long, mainstreamists continue to tell them that they can't believe it when their loved ones say something different. When their loved ones literally to their faces will say, I don't need you to protect me. I just want you to be here. And it's so hard for them to know what that means, because if they're not doing something, then who are they and so with mustafa he's not so much a fairy tale but he's definitely a compilation of various fathers that i've i've seen i wrote this book like in in its entirety and then i rewrote it in its entirety and the first version of it the father had many more shortcomings personality defects <laughs> and it was difficult to manage that along with the story about a whole other family. So in order to make it simple, he's a bit simpler. Certainly I I could probably write a whole book with just him, but I wouldn't, but he needs to be simple in order for this for the story to work, because if he was more complicated, it wouldn't have gone as smoothly. But I do worry about like a couple of times, again, going back to what happens when we talk about Viewing books by uh, people of color from that mindset of the immigrant experience, I've had a couple of occasions where I've been asked to place Mustafa as that stereotype of a controlling uh, Middle Eastern man who wants to possess his children and his spouse. He's not that guy. he's He's not that guy, and he I'm sure there are that those guys out there, but he's not that guy. And I needed that a little bit just for the story to be able to work out, but also because in order for him to be able to make the turnaround fast enough to be able to become supportive, he needed to have fewer problems. (laughs) And in reality, I think fathers, fathers are the last to get into the process, the healing process, Mm -hmm. because they are put on the periphery as some kind of guard by like mainstream society they're not allowed in to talk about emotions or their feelings or their sense of vulnerability or their inability to do anything other than just to be there and that that's okay I wanted to talk about all the different ways that men approach issues regarding violence sexual violence patriarchy and to show that especially Mustafa's uh, friend who Uh, Afork, who is a Black man, and he presents his take on sexual violence and how he learned to be supportive and how he understands his role. Again, as another jab at the continued stereotypes of brown men and Black men as being emotionally dense or very simplistic in their um, ability to be part of the family
0: i really like that conversation between those two and uh that there was uh that that moment of teaching right that a understood that this was his moment to teach mustafa right um and that he and that he had a way to do it and that Mustafa was open enough to listen and to take it in. Because the whole thing you're right about if he was truly that super controlling guy, well, he wouldn't have been able to take it in. Right. He would have brushed it off and would have said, get out of my business. I know, I know you know, I know how to how to raise my family and etc." Right. So that's what I really like. I like the steps I could see him taking towards it. Right. Admitting that control was not the way to go and not knowing what was next. But admitting mm-hmm. that and taking those, those kinds of steps. And I love the scene, you know, that scene towards the end. And I, I think this I, I've i said you know before that I think that, yes, this is a novel about sexual assault, but it's also a novel about love, right, about familial love and how people love each other and how they learn to change how they love each other. And we started by talking about the relationship between the, the two sisters. And there's a scene I love towards the end where Farah Confronts Farzana with being what Farah thinks is withholding of her emotions, and you know Farzana has to explain that's that's just who she is. It doesn't mean that she wants to keep secrets from her younger sister, but that she it, she too is learning to see what it's like to be different in the world, right? In terms of her ambition with her job, right? And I know that scene with with the uh, when she discovers that she's not in line for the managerial position because she's been professional in every way but she hasn't been uh, forthcoming and collegial with her her colleagues. And it's like a blow to her because she thinks, but I've done everything right. And according to her own standards, she has done everything right, but she has to step outside her comfort zone. So my question uh, is, what is your interest in this book? And of course, in in your first book as well, in talking about how women define intimacy between themselves and emotional intimacy, um, between sisters or or, or between friends, because that comes up uh, quite a bit in the book as well.
1: Emotional intimacy is it's the stuff of like good books. <laughs> That's what I I love the best. Anytime there's um, pillow talk between lovers or those moments where you know the mother is taking care of the sick kid and they have that cuddle in bed where something comes out of it. I see that there are people in my life, people who are comfortable with me growing, who want that for me, and don't see it as an infringement, don't see it as me making waves, uh, making their life difficult. And those are the relationships that I nurture. Many of them are women, uh, because of a shared experience we have and it happens everywhere for everyone there are these people that we can talk to in a way that is so comforting because they just remind us that even if we were comatose we're worthwhile we're we're just mm. perfect and it's okay to continue growing and working on it and i want to capture that in the books as opportunities not just that exists presently, but that we can create and grow into, give others the opportunity to share that with us. And so in the novel, whether it's between the two sisters or between the husband and the wife, it's just these small moments that really show us how vulnerable the person is because they open up and they they tell the other character this is what I'm really worried about. Oh my God, what if this happens? And it's a it's a bit of a shorthand to be able to like explore the characters like um, in inner concerns. But it's also, I think like the truth of the matter is that this is how we live. Without emotional intimacy, we are left to tell ourselves these stories that don't necessarily make sense anymore. And we need to run them by someone else to say, Hey, this is this is how I saw the thing that happened, and do you think it's okay that I I think of it like that? And to be able to hear somebody else say, "Yeah, that's fine, that's fine." If that's what you need, that's okay. You just keep going forward like that, and it helps us to just keep having these small little moments where we confirm that our version of events is valid. Our version of events can be the truth for us, and that's that's okay. And little
0: by little, we get brave enough to publish, right? Okay, I want to talk about something that I've been hearing lately that just cheeses me off, and I think it'll cheese you off as well. Okay, I... It is. <laughs> I have been hearing rumbles lately, and I guess this is a conversation that's been going on on and off for a number of years, but I don't like what, I, what I'm hearing about this um, idea of issue books right or the issue novel right and i think this is a really dismissive and and reductive term and it's almost always applied to um books that are written by uh people of color by lgbtq folks by uh certainly by women uh so indigenous writers etc um and it's always about well this is an issue book because it pushes back against the patriarchy. This is an issue book because it calls out racism. This is an issue book because it calls out sexism or homophobia, transphobia, etc. And it just it drives me crazy because it suggests that there's only one kind of book and one kind of writer and that to uh, actually talk about these issues uh, is not novelistic, but it's political and only political and political in a way that is marginal. So anyway. I am I'm am not happy with this talk and I thought I'd say so on the show I say so in my classroom as well um and have you been hearing this talk I mean and I want to give you a, a chance to respond to it
1: well Tanis that sounds like the story of my life the issue always being whatever it is that is interesting to uh mainstream right so okay uh, this is a good one. This is a good one because I, I think of it as, I guess I don't, I'm not upset. It's disappointing, but it's predictable, expected. Okay, so I think about the, I'm not sure what we call now the the construct that takes content from artists, puts a spin on it, and then puts it out into mainstream media or puts it out into the world that whatever that is, that little spin maker, I treat it like a toddler, you know, Uh, because it's like a toddler. Maybe today I taught you that this orange bit is a piece of cheese. And then tomorrow I put a white bit in front of you. And I tell you that's a piece of cheese. And they're like, no, it's not. That's not cheese. I know cheese when I smell cheese, you know? And maybe like in a couple of years, you'll come to finally at some point accept that Yeah, they're both pieces of cheese. It's okay. You know, you don't need to fight mommy on this. And I feel like that's what happens with the work of anybody from a marginalized community. We need to be put into our category. If you can't see a human being as a human being, if you're seeing them for what they are on a demographics chart you know uh then you're going to want to put them plunk them into a box and okay fine you go do your toddler thing eventually uh there'll be more of me in your system than there are of you and then we'll have some change uh the same way that we have been doing with like the feminist movement right Right. um we're seeing that the more women we have in power the difference in policies the difference that we have in culture and literature and I think that uh okay so like a couple of I don't okay this is a secret don't tell anyone I don't read very often There's just is not enough time in the day, but I do listen to a lot of uh, audiobooks, and I, I love audiobooks. The one I'm listening to now is uh, Indians on Vacation by Thomas King, and it's awesome. But I think about some of my favorite books that I, I've read in the past, uh, The Bishop's Man by um Lyndon McIntyre, uh, As the Crow Flies by Anne-Marie MacDonald. They're about violence against children. They're about sexual abuse, but no one would call those one issue book they're just they're not that they're part of a huge canadiana mm-hmm. and eventually we will all be part of that canadiana because we are right now it's just that weird spin maker that mm-hmm. thing that's like keeps like spinning things and doesn't want the orange cheese and the yellow cheese to both be considered cheese that <laughs> That will eventually need to change enough so that there are so many people in power that recognize that these are all stories, that we don't need to put them into categories the way that we we have in the past, and then change will come. But like going back to the beginning of our conversation about that, how will I impact the world? It's one brick at a time, it's just one step at a time, one block of cheese at a time.
0: i think you know on cheese and impact that's a perfect spot to (laughs) wind up our conversation i guess the last thing i'm going to ask you is what are you working on now it's kind of a cruel question to ask someone who just had a book out but can you say anything about what you're writing lately
1: i finished a novel that i've sent in it's expected out in february of no sorry and fall of 2024 so uh that is about the intersectionality of power and how women, women of color continue to face some really sticky, messy situations uh, when they strive for something outside of their present standing. I'm really excited about that one because I just love the characters. (laughs) I thought they were really good. I thought that they were interesting to write and they're still in my head, even though they've been out of my head for a while, but... Uh, So that's what I'm working on in that way. My other writing has been uh, trying to get out some articles and, uh, and I'm practicing something. I'm going to say it, but please just like, don't hold me to it, but I'm practicing writing in the first person, which is different, which is very different. So uh, that means that I write like five words an hour <laughs> I, <can't. laughs> I, write, I write the words and I'm like no 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 I wouldn't write them like that would I write them like that can I write them like that <laughs> yeah
0: that's that's a shift It's a shift from novel writing for sure I, I'm a non-fiction writer so I write in the first person all the time right <laughs> but uh but you're right uh, my my challenge is not writing in the first person and yours is <laughs> can you tell us the the working title of the novel that's coming out in 2024 untitled no. Untitled? <laughs> yeah, untitled so far yeah okay
1: <laughs> I always come up with wait. the worst titles and then my editor who is a lovely lovely woman uh, she, Pazila Jiwa, uh, she eventually will let me know that my title doesn't make any sense uh, <laughs> and then it occurs to me oh my god of course why did I name it that that doesn't make any sense <laughs> so uh, I'm just waiting for it to like hit me it's it's, it's coming it's coming I'll let you know
0: <laughs> Kimiya thank you for speaking uh, with us today Sister Scene, Sister Heard is published by Roseway Publishing, an imprint of Fernwood Publishing and is available now at Wordsworth Books or wherever fine books are sold. Please remember to support independent booksellers as you read local and think global.